Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Agroni, chief editor of Cinemaholics and film critic for Awards Watch, The Spool, and The Young Folks. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. It's Will Ashton. Hey there. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com, including written reviews and other bonus content. Write into the show anytime. Send us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to support our show, there are two main ways you can do that. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinemaholics, or you can buy some Cinemaholics merch on our merch page, which is on cinemaholics.com. We've got hoodies, mugs, t-shirts, and more. Definitely check that out in the show notes. Well, Ashton, it has been a... An interesting couple of weeks. The vaccine is here. The two of us have been doing more activities. I feel like throughout the entirety of the pandemic, we were coping with the black hole of existentialism that is our lives by watching lots of movies. And I don't know about you, but I have been watching fewer movies slightly, and I've been doing more activities. And so just kind of checking in. How are you doing? How's how's, uh, life treating you in this uh, vax summer? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is the first week in probably over a year that I was actually out and about and doing things socially. I felt like a normie for once. Uh, it was just like, oh, I have to watch these movies and I can barely get to them because I just am out doing things, which isn't the worst problem to have, certainly. But right. it does prevent me from covering the the movies that we like to discuss. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see Undyne, if, if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. We were both kind of thinking we wanted to watch it. And yeah, same same deal here. Just got caught up in other things. And I had the thought and I was like, you know what? I want to kind of enjoy this, you know, <laughs> take a little bit of a break. Sure. Yeah. Because I mean, we spent the past year pretty much covering everything we could. <laughs> so it's kind of nice just be like, yeah, you know, let's just live life. Let's see what's what's on the other side of the door. Let's, uh, let's go explore things again. So like I said, not the worst problem in the world to have, but unfortunately, that means we're only covering a handful of films uh, for this week, at least. That's right. But I am confident that the movies we are covering are going to be interesting to you, the listeners. And one of those films that we covered this past week was through our Extra Milestone. If you don't know already, Extra Milestone is a spinoff podcast that we do with Julia Tatey. And this week, we celebrated the film anniversary of Oh Hazard, Baltazar, a Robert Robert Besson movie. I always say Robert Besson, and I have to Robert Besson. As as the listeners know, my French could be improved a hundred million percent. But yeah, so that film anniversary covers. Oh gosh, so that movie came out in nineteen sixty six. So fifty five years since its release. It is a classic, classic film. And Julia and I had just watched it for the very first time ourselves. And I don't think you said you've seen it. Will I think I asked you, and you said you hadn't checked out Ohazard. Baltazar quite yet. I have not. I know you've been pretty hyped to get this one off of your watch list, but uh, yeah. it's been on mine for at least a little bit. Like I remember hearing about it, I think in college and some film courses, but um, I haven't had a chance to see it. Do you know where it's streaming? Is it just streaming anywhere? Yeah, it's it's streaming in the Criterion channel. I know it okay. got a little bit of renewed interest too because it was on movie a while back. I think it's off at this point. Good deal. It's a fantastic movie. I, and I, I was watching it and you know, I ha- I'm not the biggest person film like 
expert in terms of his filmography. I've only seen a few other of his films. Of course, though, he is a, a true legend. And we had a great conversation on the milestone, talked a bit about Bresson's work, what makes him such an idiosyncratic filmmaker, why his films influence people, and why his films can be kind of frustrating. So if you're interested in a, just a small, small dose of a little, little bit of film school with me and Julia, that is what you can expect in our latest Extra Milestone. It's a really good one. And we're still working on what our Extra Milestone is going to be for the month of June. Lots of choices, but we'll get we'll get that uh, pick out to the listeners pretty soon so you can catch up with us on the latest film anniversaries. Also, one thing I did manage to watch this past week, a couple things actually, there was Bo Burnham's new comedy special, Inside, which is on Netflix. Now, I'm not going to talk about it here because hoping to do a bonus episode for that special later this week. More details on that. Really hope we can make that happen, especially since we didn't, we're not covering too many films this week on the show. But another thing I checked out was Mayor of Easttown, which just completed its seventh and final episode it's a mini series on hbo max and it stars kate winslet it is a mystery thriller drama will i know you know mayor of easttown has been very buzzy as a show it's a craig zobel yeah. series the guy who did the hunt sure. i've been, i had been hearing great things and so i checked it out have you been hearing similarly good things from the people you trust uh, generally, I've heard good things. I know some people weren't too crazy about it, but um, I actually, yeah, I proposed at one point of, about doing a mini uh, episode about it, but um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to check out any of the show, but I know it's doing quite well on HBO Max. I believe, I think for the, the day that the finale went on there, it actually like crashed the servers, which uh, probably bodes well for how much people want to check that show out, uh, considering how many high-profile things have been on HBO Max and, and didn't cause the same type of issues. So uh, definitely one I want to check out at some point. Yeah, I always like when a a series or something like this kind of comes out of nowhere and it, it kind of captures the zeitgeist a little bit and it's not based on the typical fare. And in a way, it kind of is because it's a crime drama. So like these things definitely, you know, it's, it's kind of in the same zone as something like Big Little Lies. But I, I got to say, I, I have noticed a few people a bit like, ah, I don't see why people like this so much. The show takes place in Pennsylvania, and so, but it's not over in your your little corner of like the nope. Pittsburgh area. It's over by Philly. And yep. what I like about the show a lot, though, because uh, you know I'm from the East Coast, and so I've been to Pennsylvania many times, and I have noticed that like the the fine folks in PA have very different accents depending on where you go and i could be totally off base because i've never really lived in pennsylvania but i i was like listening to kate winslet's accent in this and i was like my gosh she really does she really worked hard on that accent and so little yeah. little thing like that made the performance even better for me yeah i heard that her accent's fantastic but almost to a detriment because her accent is so on point that the other actors yeah, kind of makes say that. them a little bit worse. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody else kind of sounds like they're from New York. And so it's kind of like, hmm, why is she sound? <laughs> it's kind of funny in that way. But, you know, Evan Peters is also in this show. Guy Pierce, it's really great cast and a good mystery. You know, it's the kind of show where it started out and I wasn't super into it. It, it kind of has very formulaic typical like there is a murder and kate winslet's character mare is this kind of cantankerous detective and she's kind of put into this situation where she has to solve a crime and you know it's it's nothing we haven't really seen before 
But what I think, where I think the show finds its real footing is in the development of this small town of East Town, where everybody knows each other and they find interesting and playful ways of or playing up how Mare, the character, the the central character of the story, the heart of the story, how she has to be a detective in a town where everybody knows her, where she can't really get away with doing anything without like the whole town spreading word about it, where, you know, a, a suspect might be somebody she's known since she was a little kid. It's like little things like that that make this entire world feel very lived in. And I think this show really gets by on the strength of its characters. Its characters are so wonderful, really well written. They're really great twists and turns. So the mystery crime portion of it is really good too. I know that some people might watch it and they might not love all of the subject matter. They might not love all of its messaging and things like that. But I found it, even though it's not the most grip-worthy sort of content, I don't think the story itself is all that unique or special. I kind of fell for Mare here. And I think that it is a wonderful watch, really, really strong premise. And I was pretty satisfied by the very end of it. Long episodes, though, so it's a bit of a commitment. And I just want to say, too, I really enjoyed Andre Rice in this. She plays... Uh, Kate Winslet's daughter. We've seen her in like the Spider-Man movies, the nice guys, things like that. Always great to see her continuing to make a name for herself. Also, David Denman in a performance that was a little stronger than I think we've seen him in and a little kind of recently. I, I kind of liked him in this as well. And yeah, I'll just leave it there. I think that Mayor of Easttown, I don't know if it's going to, you know, reach the hype that other people are giving it. I don't think it's like the greatest thing ever or anything like that, but I can see why people were so hooked on it because I certainly had to keep watching. I wanted to know what was going to happen in the last episode. I can see why the service crashed. People didn't want to get spoiled. And so I will not spoil anything for any of you. Definitely check it out if it's already on your radar. I think you'll probably be, be pleased. With that, that's everything that we're going to capture. Um, did you have anything to add though before we get into our feature review? No, but I did have one question about Mayor of Easttown, and you might have addressed it, and I might have missed it, but how is my man Guy Pierce? I always got to know about how Pierce is. He's one of my favorite actors. (laughs) It's hard to talk about because it's a very spoilery show, right? And I know when you cast Guy Pierce, there are always like expectations. And they're they're always they're either going to be subverted or they're going to kind of go the way you think. And I don't want to lead anybody in any direction, right? That's the whole point of the show. But in a very general sense, Guy Pierce is cool. You know, I don't nice. think he's very oh, yeah. important to this in terms okay. of like he's not in it a ton. Um, but when he's there, oh. I think it works. And yeah, you know, I, I don't want you to be disappointed if you do check it out and you're expecting the Guy Pierce show. That is not the case. But mm. for me, I didn't really mind because I loved the other characters so much. A lot of other actors in here that I didn't recognize that I barely thought about, you know, some of the other talent that they had gotten for this who kind of come and go into the show. So. Yeah, but I think um, wasn't that sort of a selling point of the show because Kate Winslet and Guy Pierce initially were on, um, was it Mildred Pierce together? And they like both won Emmys for it like a few years back. So this is like their like sort of reunion thing, if I can recall correctly. Honestly, it, it that didn't even register for me. And it's it's one of the, it's like trivia right? It's not really, if that was the way they wanted to market the show, that's not why I was initially interested in it. I mean, I'm always happy to see Guy Pierce, but I honestly, to tell you the truth, I didn't even know he was in the show until he showed up. And I was like, oh, hey, All right. it's Guy Pierce. Uh, see, I was the opposite. My uh, my Guy Pierce radar went off and I was like, 
he's on the horizon. What's going on? And then I found uh, you out have about the Mary alert, out. You know, Yeah. So a little antenna came out of my head and started spinning. And I was <laughs> like, what's, what's he doing? What's, what's the next project for him? So I'll have to, I definitely want to check it out, but uh, especially for him. So I'll keep you posted whenever I do see it. Yeah, if you do, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about the show. I'm sure, you, as always, you will have a very interesting Will Ashton opinion. And speaking of which, I want to get your big opinion on our featured review of the week, the big movie of the week that unseated A Quiet Place Part 2 at the box office, doing really good box office itself, and that is The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. In 1981, Arnie Johnson pled not guilty. We think this family was cursed. By reason of demonic possession. I am not going before a grand jury and saying he was possessed by demons. Whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. So this is the third Conjuring film. If you haven't seen the first and second Conjuring, I guess we're not really going to give much away here. It's they're not very connected movies in terms of a like interconnected plot or a, you know it's it's a very episodic franchise. I guess you could say it's a horror franchise with a lot of supernatural elements. And at this point, the Conjuring verse or the Conjuring universe has been spread into all kinds of different movies. You, of course, have the first Conjuring 2013, Conjuring 2 in 2016, and I like both of those movies a good bit. You also have The Nun. You have three Annabelle movies, The Curse of La Llorona, whose director, Michael Chaves, has come back to direct this film, replacing James Wan, who did the first two Conjuring movies. And I guess we can start there. So Michael Chaves is a visual effects artist, and you can really tell with the third Conjuring, he's really amplified everything quite a bit. We're still following the Warrens, of course. I mean, I I don't think it would be a Conjuring movie without them at this point. Ed and Lorraine Warren are once again portrayed by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, who are paranormal investigators who in this movie are trying to solve an exorcism gone wrong and one that could prove to ruin the life of one of these 
uh, latest victims in a spooky haunting with all kinds of twists and turns related to satanic cults and a child who gets possessed in the very beginning of this movie, a court case actually that happens in this movie, which I was not expecting. I, I have to be totally honest with you. I was not super well versed in the title of this film and the, the history behind it, because this takes place in the 1980s. And there's this famous case where a man said, the devil made me do it defense in order to get, a, I don't want to say get away with murder, but to defend himself in a murder trial. And so that's kind of the hook for this movie, kind of not at the same time. This movie was supposed to come out in September of last year. It was delayed due to the pandemic. So now Warner Brothers is releasing this in theaters and on HBO Max. Even more impressive to me that it's making as much money as it is when you can just watch it on HBO Max right now. So that tells you the power of horror cinema, uh, especially in a summer where I think people are getting reacquainted with the theatrical experience, but I got to say, I was looking at, you know, the chatter for this new Conjuring movie, not a lot of reviews for it I was seeing in terms of like people featuring it or talking about it. I, the local theater here is still playing a quiet place. They're not playing this Conjuring movie. They don't have a lot of screens. And I find it kind of interesting. It almost kind of feels like people are conjuring doubt, at least culturally. But then when you actually look at the box office, audiences seem to disagree. They, they seem to be all in. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that at this point? Yeah, I mean, I honestly kind of forgot that they were doing another Conjuring movie until I want to say like a week ago when well, the devil I made saw... them do it. And the devil, of course, being, you know. Warner yes. Brothers. The yes. <laughs> um, but when I saw the trailer for or sorry, when I saw the um Quiet Place Part Two, there was a trailer for this film during that I was like, Oh yeah, the Conjuring movie, when is that coming out? And then yeah, it said like June fourth. Tomorrow. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's coming out this week. Uh so yeah, it wasn't really on my radar. I, I knew it was happening, but I thought it was happening later in the summer for whatever reason. So um yeah, and then it, and it was also kind of weird for me because I knew In the Heights was coming out this coming week, and that's also a Warner Brothers release. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's like their big June film. So I didn't even think they would have anything else coming out this month. And also, like, June, I mean, I know these movies tend to come out in the summer, but it also just feels weird that they have a high-profile movie coming out at the beginning of June, which I know is, is precedent for the other films, but still always feels a little weird for me. Like, there are two major horror movies in theaters right now, but whatever um yeah so it wasn't on my radar either i will admit yeah it's it's very odd because i mean it's it's definitely a different movie from in the heights and of course we're going to talk about that movie soon but yeah i, I was very surprised i was like oh my gosh they're like kind of back to back here but Regardless, let's talk about The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And I want to start with the first two movies. I already mentioned that I kind of like those movies. I, I really like the second one. That's my favorite one. I, I like that they went to London for it. It was kind of a different location. I like that they expanded the mythology of it more. And I think what I like about these movies in general, you know, I mean, they're very popcorn cinema in terms of you know, the horror elements of it are very basic in a fun way. And I think they're, they're schlock but in a way that I personally enjoy. In this movie, though, I think where I struggle with this one is that you kind of lose a lot of the nuanced touches of James Wan. Like the way that he's able to sort of kind of quiet the movie down and pace it so that 
everything feels all the more effective, even though I, I won't say that those first two movies are astounding or anything in terms of atmosphere. This third one, I don't know. I felt like I was in kind of a comic book world. I felt like in, I was in a world that had completely lost touch with any sort of, you know, precept for, you know, based on a true story, which they always try to hype up with these movies. And of course that, you know, loosely unbelievably loosely based i mean obviously there's not much truth to be had in any of these films but that's fine because they're kind of fun for what they are but what, what did you think will did you enjoy this one not especially no um but uh for some reasons you're suggesting and not others um i i did quite enjoy the first conjuring when it came out i haven't revisited it since and uh you know i wasn't looking at it at the time as like oh this is this major franchise starter i was just like hey this is kind of a cool throwback horror movie that is made by you know a pretty established horror director and he was coming at a point in his career where it felt like he was kind of finalizing what he really wanted to do as a filmmaker obviously had like saw and insidious before that but they kind of felt like stepping stones to this movie and it was like okay here's a director really flourishing and coming into his own as a filmmaker uh with conjuring 2 i felt it was just more of the same but to lesser results uh i thought overall the film was fine i know you're a big fan of it probably the biggest fan that i know i will admit um <laughs> i found it to be i mean it was like a i just remember it being pretty baggy and a bit repetitive like it felt like every scene was starting to be structured in a certain way which is something i have noticed with the other conjuring movies and i feel like that's primarily why they feel like diminishing results is that they tend to kind of have this similar format scene by scene where they amplify or they they downplay the music and everything has like this kind of like quiet subdued tone and then like they do something where it's like oh something's going to come out there but then behind them is the real thing and it's yeah. effective at first but especially in this movie it's just like okay like i get it i know what you're going to do and by this point it just felt kind of dull especially considering that i i do enjoy the performances from vera formega and patrick wilson as the warrens uh i know they're, they kind of play him as like a like squeaky clean version of the warrens where they have like pure hearts and uh there's something almost kind of endearingly cheesy about how much they um mm -hmm. clean up their their image even though i mean uh you can read a lot about the actual warrens and they weren't exactly great people, and I think we can leave it at that. But um, in in the film themselves, or in these films, they, you know, they, they're they're enjoyable. But it just kind of felt like by this film, like I I, I could kind of just see in their eyes that they didn't really have much they could do at this point. It just kind of felt like it would. It didn't feel like they were phoning it in. Like I, I still think there is a like kind of warm chemistry that they share. But it did kind of feel like they were starting to go into the motions in a way that even in something like Annabelle Comes Home, I still feel like there was some spark into their performance. By this point, it just kind of felt like they were like season five into a series. And it's just like, you know, we'll we'll show up, we'll do the job, but we're not really like there's not a whole lot we can really do with these characters at this point because they aren't really ever fully fleshed out. They're just kind of there to, you know, get the events going kind of. Uh, bring the exorcisms on, get everything uh, up and moving, basically. And, uh, you know, after a point, it just kind of feels a bit worn out. And even though this is only the third Conjuring movie, it feels like the 15th, considering all the sequels and spinoffs that we've gotten at this point. And uh, I don't know, it just, it just felt a bit tired at this point. Uh, not like incompetent or anything. It didn't, it wasn't as bad as The Nun, which I happened to see last year at the drive-in. Uh, a bit of a disadvantage because I saw it after seeing The Exorcist for the first time, <laughs> uh, which Jeez. gets a 
uh, a call back or a, a call out in this film um, at oh, the yeah. beginning. Big time. Um, yeah. And, you know, like I see The Exorcist for the first time and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a, an amazing movie. And then you see The Nun and it's just like, this might be one of the worst horror movies I've ever seen. <laughs> really? I I still can I still contend the, the Nun is pretty fun gothic horror, but uh, that's where we disagree, I, I mean, I guess. like I said. I saw it after The Exorcist, so I mean, you know, that that's a tough yeah, act I get to it. follow. <laughs> it's like going from steak to you know the cinnamon yeah. crisps at Taco Bell. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I was gonna. Say, well, yeah, I, I I won't besmirch uh, Taco Bell. I'd say it's like getting like a uh, warmed over like one dollar sandwich at McDonald's after eating like a fine pristine steak. It's just kind of like, yeah, this isn't quite the same. But I mean, similarly, I was pretty drunk when I watched The Nun. So and sure. <laughs> I was drunk at McDonald's, but it, so there you go. All right. I wish I was drunk watching The Nun, but I I saw the drive-in, so that would that would not be uh, uh, legally advised. Yeah, so yeah. Good call. There. Unfortunately, Good call. I had to watch it dead sober, and that was not the call. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think this is somewhere in the middle. Like, I I don't think it's as bad as that film or the first Annabelle, but it just doesn't have the flair or pop of the first uh, Conjuring movie, or even to some extent the second one. It just kind of feels like this is over and done with at this point. And uh, I will agree with you that I think what is as schlockiest, it is at its best, just in terms of like actually having a little bit of juice in its system. But uh, it it just doesn't really have a lot of build up to those moments. Uh, it just kind of feels like all of a sudden we're in like crazy mode. And uh, I can admire that to some extent because it, it keeps things a little bit exciting, but it also just feels a bit haphazard and how the movie short, sort of shifts tones and style halfway through. Uh, in, in a way that I found myself disappointed because I really liked the aspect of doing a court case around this. Like, I felt like that was an interesting idea. Like, they could do something like maybe the Warrens have like a crisis of faith. Yeah, but they abandon it. Right. And it just they, like they completely leave that premise alone. But she's like, I, that was like a, what appealed me to. I was just like, if you're going to do another Conjuring movie, like, yeah, if you put them on trial, because these movies are better when they're a little bit more contained and they're kind of like based in one location and stuff. And I was like, if it's a court drama, yeah, that, that's an interesting idea. But. Alas, they decided to make it a run-of-a-mill studio horror movie, and uh, I would say not for the better. Yeah, they they played it safe because I think they were they were thinking like, well, no one wants to watch a courtroom drama, and that's probably true. <laughs> you know, like there's they could have very easily made this not work. You know, if they if they had done too much of the the courtroom stuff, and then it would have been really boring. It was like, well, this isn't what I came here for. But then they they played it too safe in the other direction where they introduced that idea, but then they go off on this wild goose chase, this really uninteresting set of intrigue where most people are going to call all the the twists and everything. And I, I have to say, I mean, you kind of mentioned it doesn't have the flair and plop, pop of the first movie, but to me, it, it almost had a little, it had too much. It was too much. It was just like every five minutes we had to have another big set piece. And I think the big issue with this movie is that I care about the Warrens and, you know, I, in this movie and in, in the movies, not the, the real people. And this version of them, like I come to these movies because I like them. I think they're marriage and I like that they're, they are sort of these people who, you know, are just trying, they put themselves in danger for the sake of others. And mm -hmm. they're, they kind of, they're kind of lionized by these movies. And I like the idea. And I mentioned this in my review for awards watch. Cause I, I kind of mentioned how the same thing you're saying about how just the formula here is way too thick. It's just like, Oh my goodness. Like the, please shake things up a little bit. It's, it's falling back on these rituals that 
has so much diminishing returns. And I think a, a great avenue for this movie would have been to analyze the Warrens on more of a spectrum of than just like it's good versus evil. It's like the the big matchup. Can they defeat this latest villain? And that's why I kind of said it like it feels like a comic book world, you know, where they're like these supernatural superheroes instead of being more complicated, interesting characters. And the other problem is that like the other characters are just not interesting so like you really only have the warrants to latch onto. i did kind of like john noble in this movie he's not in it enough though he kind of gets like the small bit role couple couple like literally what like two scenes and so I, I didn't find that to be all impressive and yeah i just i just have to say i think that there is room here for a movie here to analyze and evaluate the Warrens and maybe challenge the way that they view good and evil and and make a horror movie about, you know, some of the cliches of horror. But that's just not what this is. It's just sort of a very loud, mostly dumb kind of retread with a very, very uninteresting set. Like at this point, I think that with each movie, right, they introduce like a new character to have a spinoff. And I personally think that this movie just felt like a vehicle to introduce the disciples of Ram, which is like the new big spooky thing. We're probably going to see two or three movies about them or, you know what I'm saying? And maybe like uh, a character like John Noble, cause we find out he's kind of like connected. He's like a retired priest. He's kind of connected to bringing them down as we learned very early on in this movie. And so I could totally see them like bringing him back. Right. And like, I don't know. I just, I see the formula. I see the like, okay, you're doing this here again. And so I, I got to say, as much as I find the movie itself schlocky, you know, in ways that will certainly satisfy like hardcore fans, they're going to come out and watch this and get what they want for the most part. I just don't see anything truly valuable beyond just kind of like a short term dopamine dose. Yeah, because uh, I just saw this only a few hours ago and I already feel like it is escaping my mind at this point, just because like, as you were suggesting, there's not a whole lot to latch on to. It just feels like another installment in this franchise. And I agree with you. I think the only performance that really stood out to me was John Noble's, uh, just because there was a sort of gravitas to his uh, side character that that did feel a little bit interesting or had some intrigue to it that. Yeah, you can't help more, it. Like the yeah. gravitas is just like it like escapes him, you know? So even sure. in a movie like this. Yeah. So, I mean, if they do a spinoff with him, whatever. I, I don't know. I guess I'll see it. <laughs> uh, we'll I we'll see you all on Cinemaholics and talk sure. about it. Uh, I want a spinoff of that uh, large naked zombie guy. Because he was easily my favorite character, just for the the absurdity of him coming. Because he comes back more than once. I won't give away how, but I was just That's like, true. I just love that the movie is so adamant about making this guy a thing. And I'm like, give him a <laughs> spinoff, Naked Zombie sure, Man, yeah. <laughs> the next installment in the Conjuring universe. The uh, what is it? The the CU, I guess. Conjuring the CU, uh, the CCU, the CCU, probably. Yeah. The Conjuring Cinematic Universe. So uh, give that guy a four-picture deal. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of spent on the Conjuring movies, which is a shame because, like I said, I like that first movie fine. I think it's a, a pretty fun, enjoyable popcorn horror movie. But this one, just it just felt like no one really cared or put that much energy into it or really had a take that felt interesting, which is a shame because I think the core premise could have been cool if they were willing to make it about the court drama itself, which is the actual, you know, thing that's based on a true story, quote unquote, as they say at the beginning. But alas, uh, what can you do? Yeah, they, they just couldn't conjure up a good time, I suppose, there at least go. for us. 
But if you like The Conjuring, let us know and uh, tell us your reasoning for why you might like it uh, a little bit more than we did. Now, I didn't hate this film. I, I think that it's just kind of like pretty mediocre. I'm yeah. a pretty low C plus, And so I, I thought about, you know, a C, but I, I'll admit, you know, there, there were a couple of jump scares that were effective. It's not like this thing's a big old dud. And so, like I said before, I think the hardcore fans are going to get enough out of it that's going to justify the price of admission. But beyond that, I just don't see this really making any sort of impact, which for me is a shame because, like you said, I really liked The Conjuring 2, much to the dismay of other people in the world who <laughs> apparently didn't like that movie as much. I don't know. But I, I stand by it. I think that's a fun movie. So, and I like the first one too as well. And I like The Nun. Maybe I'm just an easy mark for these movies. Maybe that's what it I is. Guess. Um, but all right, Will, what's your, what's your grade? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit lower, but not too much lower. I gave it like a uh, plain old C just because um, when I was watching, I didn't necessarily hate it. I found myself kind of dulled by it, but nothing like terribly offensive. It is fairly watchable. And, and for the most part, it seems somewhat competently made, even though it does favor the more garish side of the uh, the franchise's touches, as opposed to kind of the more subdued slow burns that I, I liked from the first movie. But uh, in any case, I do agree with you that I like that the movie is willing to have at its core a functional, healthy relationship between two like middle aged people, like just in our, you know, sort of adolescent uh, movie landscape. It, it is something kind of quaint and sweet about having that be the focus of these uh, long spanning movies. But as you were suggesting, like, I, I feel like there needs to be a little bit more put into that relationship to make it compelling at this point. They're just kind of doing the same thing over and over again to the point of formula. And it just doesn't really feel like anyone's committed to enough to, to make this stand out in any particular way. So yeah, just a, a shoulder shrug, shrug C of a film for me. Yeah, I mean, I forgot to even mention the fact they kind of work in their age. You know, they're getting a little bit older. They're not as spry. We see like throughout the movie that... Ed Warren, you know, his health is kind of deteriorating for reasons that you see pretty early in the movie. And I think that, yeah, to what you're saying, it, it works because like it makes it kind of ramps up the tension a little bit because you're like, oh, gosh, you know, they, you know, they, 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 they aren't what they used to be like. They're they're kind of getting older. That's kind of factoring into the plot. However, at one point, the movie just completely abandons all of that. And then, you know, their, you know, their limitations and age have no bearing whatsoever on the plot at some point. But whatever. I uh, can't get into that because I would kind of give away certain aspects of the third act. That said, yeah, I mean, this is the flagship of the series. So it's a bit of a disappointment uh, that it's uh, for me, it's such a big, big departure, but it's doing well at the box office so far. I mean, it's it's made like the second lowest of the Conjuring movies. Um, to, to be fair, it debuted at 24 million in North America. Uh, it's doing well internationally. So it's at like 57 million worldwide, which is really good, you know, for the pandemic curve. And also the fact that, like we said, it's on HBO Max. Uh, but, you know, it's the, the reviews are probably hurting it a bit probably kind of keeping it from making even more money. And we'll see in like the next few weeks if it kind of tapers off pretty fast. It, but it has a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't terrible. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's probably good enough for people who are already fans of the series. And so, yeah, you can check it out now on HBO Max or in theaters. It is just 112 minutes long. Not too long. Let's get into a movie that is very different. Uh, a movie that actually... I don't think could be any more different from The Conjuring uh, because this is a documentary called All Light Everywhere, 
This is a documentary that was written and directed by Theo Anthony. And he went into this documentary. We, we, we both watched this at Sundance this past year. And so it's now getting a, a wider release and uh, by Super LTD. And this documentary, Theo Anthony went into it. You can kind of tell he had a bit of a goal here with this movie where coming out of the Freddie Gray murder and a lot of the police brutality that we've been seeing uh, kind of more than ever because of the proliferation of social media. Of course, we had uh, George Floyd last year and we had Breonna Taylor. We, we just have all of these instances where continuously the police are inflicting harm on people, on black people. And there's this call to be to hold the police accountable. And so one of the things we've been seeing over the last six years to ramp up efforts to de-escalate violence is to have police officers wear body cameras. And that's where this documentary comes in. And Theo Anthony had the idea where he was kind of looking into the body camera industry, how it works. And he was initially intrigued by the fact that, hold on, wait a minute, one of these companies called Axon is a, is a weapons company. Like the, I think it was Axon that was the weapons company, but one of the companies like producing the body cameras also makes weapons. And so he started to see a bit of a, a an interesting, you know, it kind of raised his eyebrows a bit and it kind of made him wonder what is the, the underlying thesis behind these body cameras? How are they being utilized? And as he sort of uncovers that in this documentary, we see really this, proliferation of a surveillance state and a lot of biases in favor of using body cameras or weaponizing them in a way to actually hold the police less accountable in ways that you see as you watch this documentary. And I, I found this documentary to be pretty fascinating, kind of a hard watch in certain places, I'll be totally honest. But what did you think of All Light Everywhere? Yeah, I mean, that was the one that was pushing for us to cover it on the show, just because I know um, when I thought back on the movies from Sundance this year, that, that really just sunk under my skin and made some sort of indelible impact. This is certainly one of them. Uh, maybe because I wasn't really sure what to expect from this. I hadn't seen Rat Film, Theo Anthony's previous film. But uh, I, I have, I, I think I've seen other movies that are sort of like influenced from it. I, I know like the style is very individual to him, but does seem like it is uh, paving a way for documentaries to be uh, filmed or, or from a new perspective, fittingly enough, uh, in, in documentary films moving forward. And uh, I just remember when I saw it at the festival, I was like basically like on my last leg, just like barely keeping up at that point like i was probably like at least 30 films deep into the festival so i saw it pretty late at night and i, I wasn't 100 sure if i could finish it but as it went along it just really sunk in to the point where like by the end of it i just felt wide awake completely wired in a way that uh i was just ramming it uh just thinking so much about like what the film is saying how it's uh tackling this topic in a way that's like Broad reaching, but also, as you're suggesting, like fairly specific, very pointed, has a very key perspective that it wants to say, but it is allowing itself to also kind of ask some bigger questions that that really I found to be a fascinating, worthwhile watch. And uh, I, I think it is pretty fittingly damning of the subjects that it wants to be damning towards, but it's also asking some other questions that uh, really just allow you to have a, a curious uh, perspective on objectivity and surveillance culture in a way that uh, is 
making it one film that I've thought about a lot throughout this past year. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is a movie about power, right, as you're watching it. And it, it's about the power of who decides what quote-unquote objectivity is. And that's that's the thing I do like about it. It is something that has stuck with me a bit more than I personally anticipated when I, because like you, I mm-hmm. watched this, yeah, at the tail end of Sundance, and I was I was exhausted. I especially like how the movie, this isn't like a, a Michael Moore kind of documentary where it's really aggressive in kind of trying to like provoke a reaction out of you. And I, I'm not trying to like talk any smack about Michael Moore or anything. He has his filmmaking style. He has his movies or whatever. To me, this one I think is valuable in a different way where it's way more subtle about how it is to what you're saying, kind of like lambasting these private surveillance companies. Like there, there's like this one, uh, I think like the first, I think it's Axon as well. It's it, Forgive me because it's been a little bit of time. So I don't remember a lot of the details, but I remember like just how totally uh, like hypocritical like some of these companies are like we see them kind of talking about like, oh, you know, we we designed this building so that we can see what everybody is doing at all times. We we believe in transparency. Transparency is like super important to us. And then at the end of the tour, yeah. they're like, oh, but sorry, no, there's this blocked out area. You know, you can't. Oh, yeah, it's called the black box and you can't you can't look into it. Nobody can see what's going on in there. And you're just mm-hmm. as the viewer being like, OK, right. Yeah. And what I love about that scene, too, is that it's also like. It, it's doing something where it's just obviously showing like how he's trying to like perceive his own image or like, you know, like just like he's constantly asking for feedback and like just like, oh, should I do it like this? Like coming in from an, an angle where it's like clear that he like wants yeah. to sell an image in a certain way. And uh, it is like pretty nakedly transparent, which is obviously fitting of the film. But it also just without like really forcing anything, just lets him kind of just say everything we need to know from him as a person, just from watching how he wants to or he wants us to see him uh and it just uh yeah it just shows that theo anthony i think it's a very interesting filmmaker and uh i mean obviously i think in addition to everything we're talking about this is a film in a way about filmmaking as well because is there any real way to have objectivity in filmmaking is a question that the film is obviously i think asking in many respects uh even from him uh in a way that uh could be a little like i guess oblique but it ends a way that that feels fairly hopeful unexpectedly so i i, I think what it's saying about there, I guess it could have been a little bit more explored from that angle, but the fact that the film is talking about so much in a fairly short span of time, I am willing to be forgiving. I, I'm, I can forgive the film for not diving that as, into that aspect as much, but um, it is something that also raises a lot of interesting questions as well. I, I like this movie a lot when, you know, you can tell Anthony's trying to get his point across. And, you know, I, I like those sequences, those scenes. The movie kind of loses me when it gets a little bit too abstract and it starts to feel a bit like a dissertation. And it just, I don't know, it kind of buries itself in the weeds. I like this movie more when it's just sort of like evaluating the information, dense as it is, and sort of like <laughs> bringing light to it. Like, for example, I think that it he does a good job of like presenting their side of the argument of well, why should body cameras be less sharp and enhanced in high definition and they try to present this argument of like well you know that's how the cop is seeing it and so we want it to be objective because if we showed you like a 360 degree angle if we had like you know infrared and heightened details it would be unfair because then this stuff is used in evidence of court of like if the police acted wrongly or if the police Uh, the cop in particular was unjustified in using violence and the movie doesn't like outright say this I don't recall but I remember thinking while watching that being like 
Well, isn't that the point? Like these cameras should capture exactly what is going on. And if the police officer fell short of that and wasn't able to like deal with that, then they should be reprimanded at least in some way of like, well, clearly this was a situation where, you know, first of all, like we see the world in very high definition, right? Like, I don't know. It it felt like it was a company with an agenda of trying to sort of like protect bad apples. And I like that the movie didn't like say it like too aggressively. So you felt like it was preachy. It was actually just sort of like provoking you to think for yourself in these cases and kind of like make your own conclusions. But yeah, just to reiterate, I thought the movie just got, it became a bit too of a mosaic. And so like, I don't know, there were certain like threads of it that I didn't feel I I got a total grapple on. That could be that me being more frustrated by it and perceiving it as a mess when it could have been a little bit more of a cohesive feel that I just didn't pick up on. However, I will say that that is something where you and i tend to differ on movies like you like tree of life and i don't you know that like that kind of filmmaking style sometimes loses me but yeah what what do you think yeah i mean that's basically what i was going to add which is that i understand that if you wanted something that had a little bit of a tighter thesis i understand that um something like this can be a little bit too uh varied or it's trying to do a little bit too much with uh so little amount of time but at this point in my life at least and i guess uh for the past few years, if we're talking Tree of Life, um, I, I tend to value a film that is willing to really paint with a broad stroke and like talk about a lot of things at once and maybe not tackle everything with the same weight and honesty rather than something that just is so keenly focused on one topic or issue and doing it like fairly well, but not really having as much to say or causing as much thought or provocation. So uh, I, I ultimately do value a film like this that is able to really dive into a lot of things at once, uh, kind of get its own head a little bit too much in a way that I ultimately find admirable. Some people might find it a little uh, too excessive, but what can you do? I like what I like, and this is a film I like. For sure, for sure. And it's a film I like, but with caveats, for sure. And I, I think it's because I think the material that I like, I like so much that I ultimately come out recommending it. Because like I've said, I mean, I just, I think that when this movie is talking about objectivity and how objectivity is becoming like a product, like it's, it becomes something that people are selling. There's just something so inherently fascinating about that to me. And I think that like getting into the details is definitely valuable because you're able to say like, here is how, like, here is the science behind like our, our optic nerve and how like four people can look at a situation, have a completely different takeaway. And that can be very scary, but you know, it can also be kind of humbling too. Yeah. I love that stuff like that, where it is able to just like focus so keenly on like something like that, that is a detail that I think most filmmakers would probably just ignore, but it's, it's clearly something that Theo Anthony finds interesting and wants to incorporate. And, uh, you know, some people just may be like, I don't know what's the point of adding that in, but for me, it's just like, that's the key to the whole thing. That's what makes it really so fascinating, interesting to me. And it just shows, I think Theo Anthony is just going to have a pretty amazing filmmaking career if he continues on this trajectory. I totally agree. You know, I think that I, I think this movie is very insightful. 
And we're probably, you know, it's, it's difficult because I know this subject matter is extremely contentious. You know, you have one side that feels like the police are being unfairly, you know, targeted and are kind of under an existential threat by like the culture because the culture is demanding, you know, in some cases, police be defunded, police be abolished. I mean, there's fringe elements that are kind of all over the place on that. There's some people who are like, we just, we just need to fix this problem. And then on the other side, people are feeling like we we have to make sure that the police don't go away and that no no you're you're overblowing it and like there's this big debate you know going on and you know I certainly have my opinions on it and I think this documentary clearly like Anthony isn't trying to hide behind what his stance is or anything but I do appreciate that he is like exploring well you know even the solutions like solutions with good intentions ones that can make everybody happy in theory certainly have to be evaluated and they have to be dissected and shared and so if a movie like this can sort of educate people on some of the this material, you know, or make people rethink a position they had before or affirm something that they believe, but weren't sure how to articulate it to others and then have like the tools necessary to sort of uh, talk to people about this in good faith and actually discuss ways where these problems can be addressed. Yeah, I think that this documentary can be very very helpful in that sense. And so I I hope people give it a chance and don't just sort of view it as a reactionary film. I do not think it is like that at all. I think it actually is pretty thoughtful and meticulous in a way that is as effective for what it is. So ultimately I I come down on a pretty high B minus. I I think it's worth a watch, but I do think it might be pretty frustrating for some people. And uh, I, I wish that it was a bit tighter as we've mentioned, but yeah, where do you land? Yeah, I mean, I was hoping you'd be a little bit higher by the end of this conversation, but uh, I can understand, you know, it is, as you were suggesting, uh, (laughs) a film that is uh, a little bit uh, um, haphazard in terms of just trying to say so many things at one particular time to the point where it might, for some people, undermine what does effectively in other kind of key, uh, smaller pockets of the film. But I don't know. I ultimately found it to be pretty effective uh, in a broad sense, just as, as far as what it is able to say and how much it's able to say as a fairly dense documentary work. Um, as you're suggesting, I think it has a pretty clear perspective as far as wants to, what it wants to say. Uh, I, as the movie suggests, uh, what is really objectivity? I mean, at this point, like, is there any sense of uh, full, clear objectivity? But I think also the movie makes a lot of fine points as far as what it's trying to say about the police state in a way that I found pretty effective and damning. And uh, I ultimately found it to be a pretty major work and one that stuck with me throughout the festival and the weeks prior or weeks to follow. I mean, so uh, I'm going to give it a pretty warm A minus. All right. And I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm working on my top films of 2021 so far list since we are getting into the halfway mark of 2021 can't believe that's the case and I, I could genuinely see myself changing it to a b i'm still kind of chewing on it so you know we'll, we'll see about that and yeah i'm glad you like it as much as you do it's it's definitely uh i think a positive good in the world and one that's worth championing it has a 95 percent on rotten tomatoes the film is as i mentioned before being released by super ltd which is under neon actually i think it's one of their film divisions uh you can check it out right now in select theaters i believe and so definitely check it out if you're interested it is only 109 minutes long and that's all we have for you this week on cinemaholics we'll be back 
uh, later this week, hopefully with some bonus content. Hope you all enjoy the show. And uh, don't forget to check us out on all of our social media channels and all that's, of course, in the show notes. So definitely take a look if you want to connect with us a little bit further. We'll be back next week to talk about In the Heights and possibly the amusement park. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're still kind of figuring out our schedule for the week, but definitely watch this space and we will see you all later. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube. See you all next time.